All right, let's get back to the regularly scheduled program here, which is Faithful Wounds by Steve Arsenault. I'm Steve Arsenault, your host for the evening, so let's just jump right into that. I was on the phone with Sean earlier. He asked me what I was preaching on. I said, Sean, what are you asking for, a title? You know, I don't do titles, so I decided not to do a title. But if I was going to title it, it would be something like Be Imitators. And I'd also call it part two from last week. So if you were here and you didn't like last week, I'm going to apologize in advance. Who here knows who George Bernard Shaw is? Raise your hand if you've heard that guy and you know who he is. Cool. All right, well, he said this. He said, imitation is not just the sincerest form of flattery. It is the sincerest form of learning. Keep that in mind. This is a Nobel Peace Prize winner in literature. Um, This other really cool guy named Paul, about 2,000 years ago, he said this. He said, therefore, guys, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial Fragrant offering to God. I like that too. Paul is is definitely worth some applause. Okay? He was speaking under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this was God saying, essentially, imitate me. Right? And this is this is really powerful in and of itself, but it's super powerful because it comes on the back of everything we went over last week. Remember Ephesians 4, right? And 3, which are talking about how. The whole point of this gospel is so that God's manifold wisdom could be made known to the heavens and the earth. And that in Christ, God was doing this work that he said was a mystery. God was doing this work that was a mysterious work for most people throughout all of history that he was building and working towards. But in Ephesians, Paul says, but this mystery was revealed to the apostles and prophets today, meaning like in Christ, he revealed them. And we have the revelation of Scripture. And Paul goes on to explain it. It was this, that in Christ, God was bringing all things together in him in order to break down all the barriers and the dividing walls and the things that cause separation on earth and in the heavens. And that's the part that we need to stress, that this is a universal work of the gospel, not just some temporary work for humans. So in humanity... We were divided between Jews and Gentiles, meaning Jews and anyone who's not a Jew. And because the covenants and the promises and the the Messiah was for the Jewish people, and all the law and teachings was about the Jewish people coming out from among them and being clean and not being unclean with them, they developed this legalistic perspective that they were better than everyone else, and so they wouldn't eat with Gentiles, they weren't allowed to go and interact with Gentiles. Even when Jews ended up in captivity and they ended up intermarrying with other people, and they came back as, as like mixed blood, they were shunned because they weren't pure Jewish. They mixed with unclean blood, which made them unclean, right? Scripture refers to them as the Samaritans, which is why Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. He's trying to bust their boxes, right? And so here in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and even 4, Paul is constantly stressing Christ did this to break down those walls so that now, together in Christ, both Jew and Gentile have become one. 
That's the mystery that has been hidden throughout all of the ages. That God, in his foreknowledge, planned to reveal in the revelation of Christ. Right? That Jew and Gentile are now one and co-heirs together of the inheritance in Christ. And then Paul says in 4, and this is the task God gave me. To let the Gentiles know that. To make known to them the incalculable riches of Christ in this gospel. And then also to bring together everyone into the administration of this mystery that's been hidden throughout the ages. And you're like, this mystery? He keeps referring to it, but if you see what he's saying, this is the mystery. He says, so that through the church, which is the revelation, the mystery hidden, the church, God's manifold wisdom could be made known to the heavens and the earth. It's a huge deal. This is why we worship. Is because God did this amazing thing. Like if we really get down to it, this is the thing that we worship him for. And so I really stressed that last week. If you want to hear more about like the big picture, listen to last week and meditate on it and do it. I listen to it and I cringe sometimes and I'm the one preaching it. Right? Like I'm like, ooh, that's hard. I can see why people get offended. I used to be the most requested person to preach on Sundays. I'm pretty sure I'm at the bottom of that list now, after a few weeks. Uh, so I think that's cool. And when I say most requested, I'm talking about my wife, just to be clear. Every week, Steve, you preaching? Steve, you preaching? And she stopped asking me that. So, but I'm going to keep up. I'm going to keep up with it. But this week, I wanted to nail down the practical application. In other words, what does this look like? What does it mean that we've been brought together in the heavens? At the end, I touched on it, how we are the expression of Christ in the earth. Christ is seen and made known to the people on this earth through the church, through this mystery that's been brought together. And I talked about how it all comes together in a climactic moment, right? Like, it's, it's Paul talking about the big picture in the heavens and the earth and the rulers in the heavens and the rule in the earth, they need to see the manifold wisdom of God. And he's hammering this and harping on this. And then he's like, and do this and be the church. And then, hey, husbands, treat your wives well. And wives, can you just submit to your please? This is a little side tangent I went on. I know it's talking about grand things, but then I just want to take a side note to say, be nice to each other and have a good marriage. Right? And I was like, that's not what happened. You understand? Chapter 5, the end of chapter 5 is not a sudden drop-off of the climactic expression. It is the climax of the climactic expression. And we've missed it so bad because we've done it down and argued about the details and how it looks and we get so wrapped up in me and you and the selfish dynamics and like, how is this going to impact me? How is this going to impact you? When the whole point was Paul saying, how does this impact the witness of Christ on the earth? And we know that's his, that's his intention, right? Because he goes on to talk about children and then about slaves and masters. And then, at the, oh, I don't want to jump ahead. All right, ready. Here we're going to go. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Here's the theme I want you to see Paul continues to repeat from chapter 5 through chapter 6. He says, do this good thing. And you're like, cool. 
But then he adds this part to almost every time. As Christ does. And that changes everything. That pulls us out of some sort of humanistic, moralistic perspective. Or some sort of idea where we can choose what it looks like and it's up to us and hey, my flavor and my personality expresses it like this. Sure, that's allowed as long as it's submitted to the declaration of doing it as Christ does it first. You understand? The first box to check is, am I doing it like Christ does? And Paul continues to stress this. So, walk in love. That's cool. Love is love. Love wins. Everybody loves. Let love be love and love and love and love and stuff and love. Right? That's our culture's proclamation of love. Right? I love my wife. I love my toaster. I love my dog. I love this shirt. I love this makeup. Right? Like, love is one of the most meaningless words in the American language, in the English language, in the American culture. But it means something very specific in Scripture when you say, as Christ does. And it changes everything. So walk in love as Christ also loved us. There's your standard. There's your benchmark. If you don't know what that looks like, pour over the Word of God until it's revealed to you. And He gave Himself for us. And this is a shadow and an echo of where we're going to go at the end of chapter 5. Right? A sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Offering means sacrifice. Sacrifice means giving up, laying down, letting go, paying a price, suffering loss. This is what sacrifice means. And our sacrifice becomes a fragrant offering to God. And then he says, but, and here's this but, and this is an important but. It's a God but. It's very important. I'll stop there. <laughs> I was going to make a Moses joke. If you read your Bible, you get it already. Okay. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. And coarse and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognized this. No sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater, meaning greed is idolatry, is his point, has an inheritance in this kingdom of the Messiah and of God. Now I want you to understand, Paul's focus was not to suddenly shift from loving God and, and walking like Christ does to suddenly, and by the way, stop doing bad things. Do you understand? He wasn't saying that. He was saying, but, guys, but, in, in the context of loving as Christ loves and laying your life down, these people, right, should not even be heard of among you. See, he's not concerned about them being heard of. In another part, he says, hey, we live in this world. I didn't say come out from among the world because you live in it. You can't disappear. But don't be like them. And so here he's saying it shouldn't be heard of among you. Because the witness of Christ to the heavens and the earth is what's at stake, is what's online. You understand? So among you, this should not even be heard of. And then he goes on to even lesser things in our mind, and coarse and foolish talking or crude joking. They're just not suitable for people who are bearing the witness of Christ. 
You see his emphasis. He's not saying stop doing bad things. He's saying strive to be like Christ and represent him. And these things aren't suitable for that. I just want to make sure his focus is being really understood as we go through here. And he says, because these things, these people, there's no inheritance in the kingdom of God for them. They're not walking as sons and daughters of God intentionally. He's not saying they're not perfect. He's saying they're not doing this. They're not seeing. They're not living this. They're not, like we talked about last week, they're not living a life worthy of the calling they've received in Christ. And therefore, they're not representing him for the lost to see and come to him. It's a huge deal in Paul's mind. Then he goes on at the end of chapter 5, after going through this whole thing, and he's like, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. For because of these things, and right here you might make the mistake that a lot of people make, and I've made before, that you think he's talking about empty arguments. That because of these things, God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. It's not. Remember, one sentence before, he lists the things that are bringing the wrath of God. Do you understand? So he's saying, therefore, don't be deceived with empty arguments that tell you these things are okay or they're permissible or they're all right or like it's just, hey, no one's perfect, blah, blah, blah. Paul's saying, that's not my focus. That's not my point. He's saying, are you living for the glory and witness of Christ or not? Because that's the church's call and mission. To love as Christ has loved us and laid his life down for us. And he's saying, here's the fruit of that love, and here's the fruit that you're not living in that love. So he says, don't be deceived by this, guys, because the wrath of God is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. And the practical part of this is that you're not waiting for a mystical, spiritual, supernatural experience to be able to do this. Paul is telling them to do this. There's no buts or when this happens, do this. He literally says this, you were once darkness, but now you're not, therefore, walk this way. Right? Walk, live a life worthy of the call you received from Christ to come be part of his family and his body and his witness. Live a life worthy of that. So he continues. For the fruit of the light results in all goodness. It results in righteousness. It results in truth discerning what is pleasing to the Lord and what's not. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. Wait, what? No, I, I was raised to know that snitches get stitches, right? You don't go exposing these things. You don't go telling on people. Every parent here knows they've corrected their siblings for being tattletales and stuff. Right? There's no way that's what Paul means. Or maybe Paul's more concerned with the eternal state of people's souls 
and the witness of Christ that is their only hope to be saved. So he's saying, if you find darkness, expose it. Don't partner with it. Don't participate in it. Instead, expose it. Now, obviously, you need to take that in context of all his other teachings, which is be gentle and gracious. Let your words be seasoned with salt and gracious. You go in love and you reveal that thing and you expose it. But it is, it is shamefully wrong to allow a brother and sister to continue in sin or deception and not do your very best to provoke faithful wounds that exposes deception, exposes sin and distraction and what he says, partnering in these things. We have to be about that. Expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made clear. This is Paul's point. For what makes everything clear is light. Therefore it is said, and listen to this, guys. In my Bible, I have this note, right? Uh, it says, this is worth it all, with like eight exclamation points. Because he, he quotes, and he says, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead. And the Messiah will shine on you. If we had even a glimpse of the great worth and value of Christ and what it would mean for Him to shine on you, you would say, this one fact is worth it all. This is worth it all. I will wake up from any sleep. I will get up from any slumber or stupor. If the promise is that Christ will shine on me, and that shining will be a light that will expose the darkness and the deeds of the flesh that are keeping me from being with Christ in the way he's called me to, to live this life worthy of the calling in Christ. Like, that's, this is Paul's emphasis. So, therefore, the practical part, he starts hammering it. Pay careful attention, then, to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. And if we think that in evil days that we're just immune to it because we said a prayer and we come to church and we dance during worship songs, we're not. John warns us in, in the scriptures, tells us in Revelation, like, hey, even the elect may be deceived in these last days, right? Paul's warning the elect right here to not let anyone deceive you. It's vigilance, and that's how he ends this whole letter. He ends the entire letter with a heavy stress on being vigilant. I'm going to end up there. We're going to get there. So, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And this, guys, is the hardest part for Americans. Understand what the Lord's will is. We can't. It's, it's not that we can't. We, we have the ability to, but we're so wrapped up in our own desires and our own soul and our own flesh that we can't tell God's voice from our voice from the enemy's voice. And we confuse it so much. And this is why God stresses the value of the church body. Right? Being able to speak into people's blind, blind places and their blind spots and the places they don't see. The places where their soul and spirit sound so clear. And then he says, guys, I've given you the word of God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's, it's 
primary availability to you is this, that it will separate between soul and spirit. And it'll discern the thoughts and intents of your heart if you let it. And this is Paul's stress. This is what he's after. And then he says, and guys, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to foolish actions, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And there's this beautiful layout where Paul is essentially saying, guys, hold each other accountable. Get in each other's face. Encourage, exhort, sing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs one to another. The days are evil. The time is short. Band together as brothers and sisters in the faith and shine as the Messiah shines on you. Right? As the Lord does this, you do it. And we become a vessel. But then he tells us really clearly, guys, this is how to do it. And at the end of there, he says, this, these are the steps to take. Don't do this, but do this. Do this. Encourage each other. Hey, listen, give thanks always for everything. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And so then now we get into that passage that everyone loves and everyone hates. At the same time, wives submit to husbands, husbands Lay your life down for your wife and love her. And this is the part I wanted to point out. Here's the practical stuff that I missed last time because I was so in preachy mode. <clears throat> Wives submit to husbands. This was nothing new to women in their time. Guys, this was not a revelatory statement. Today, it's earth-shattering. It is culture-destroying. It is the most counterculture thing you could possibly say in America today. Do you understand? People get canceled over this statement. When Paul said it, it was the most obvious thing. People would have been like, uh, thanks for the reminder, Paul. Didn't know I had a choice. Right? Women were not equals in Paul's day and time. They could not vote. They could not learn, right? Unless they were of the wealthiest class. They couldn't go to school. They couldn't teach. They couldn't do anything men could do. They were considered property in the sense that husbands purchased them through dowries and through exchanges. And most fathers were happy to make sure their daughter was somewhere that would be able to take care of her because they don't have to now. They couldn't or they were of low means and they were always trying to get their wives to be able to marry up into a higher echelon of provision and support and status. And so these people would pay a dowry and get them. And so wives were not going around saying, who are you to tell me what to do? They said, yes, master. You understand? And that doesn't mean the husband didn't really love the woman, that there wasn't some real affection and feeling. It just is the reality of it. This is what the, it was. But this is what was revelation or revelatory or so radical and countercultural for Paul, is that he said this, wives, submit to husbands as to the Lord. Remember the theme here. This is the, the radical statement that the, the wives in the faith would have heard. 
as unto the Lord. Right? So now there's a defined picture of what this submission looks like. It's not left to us to decide or rationalize or reason out or use human understanding or anything else. It's just right there. As to the Lord. And this is why Paul keeps saying this throughout the entire book of Ephesians. Like I said, at the very beginning, love as Christ loved you and laid his life down. Right? So the radical statement here is as to the Lord part. Then when he said, husbands, love your wives, that was, again, not a radical statement. Every husband in that time would have said, I love her, do you see what I do? I take care of her, I do this stuff. But instead he says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You understand? And then at the end of that, this is the part where he brings it, this is the climax of Ephesians, guys. He says, but this is the mystery. I could... My focus is not about how you got this human relationship interacts on a day-to-day basis. It's important. That's why I said it. But I want you to know the climactic purpose behind it is that I'm talking about the mystery of Christ loving his church. That's the mystery there. Then he goes on and said, children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Then he says, fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So I could keep repeating this over and over, but I want to make sure you guys see the theme Paul is stressing. We miss it because we spiritualize Scripture so much, and we spiritualize certain terms, and we hear in the Lord, and we just think that's the equivalent of amen, or in Jesus' name. Like it's some throwaway tag that we use in in Christianese, and that it's not something incredibly important, but it is. It defines how that now has to look. Do you get that? We don't have as much freedom as we've been told we have when it comes to obeying Christ and his teachings. Do you understand? We have exchanged slavery to sin, which leads to death in exchange for being a slave to Christ because it leads to righteousness and salvation. That's the exchange. It's not freedom from sin to be a lone ranger and define everything and we can just argue and debate over what love should look like and how it should look fine. We can as long as the authoritative source where we're wrestling over is the Scriptures and how Christ did it specifically. So children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Fathers, train up your children in the instructions and training of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Like, gosh, this is, this is the bomb statement. This is the linchpin. This is the one that has the least wiggle room for us to rationalize and philosophize and, and appease our flesh and, and escape the death that is being called for. Right? We're like, woo, just narrowly escape that because love to me means this. And I am loving my wife the way Christ loves the church. Can't you see? I am submitting to my husband in a lot of things, in a lot of ways, kind of like I do to Christ. 
But then you get to the slave and master one and you realize, oh, the context of what Paul's saying does not allow this wiggle room. It's very specific and it puts you to the decision to obey or not to obey. And it has nothing to do with your spouse. Your spouse could be Nero. Do you understand? Your wife could be Job's wife. Okay? Could, I hope not, but, you know, like, these are these terrible polar opposites. And it doesn't change one bit your responsibility to obey the Lord for what He tells you to do. Do you understand? It just doesn't. You can't stand before God and say, I would have obeyed, but my wife was the worst. It's not going to fly. So he goes on to say this, slaves do it as you would Christ. Now I want you to understand who he's talking to. Slaves. People who are stuck in a position and can't leave. Now, whether he's talking about slaves as we understand it in the modern sense, which he probably wasn't, it's more so bond servants, but they were stuck in the same way. They could not provide for themselves. They had no land, they had no money, they had no way to take care of themselves, so they sold themselves into servitude for most of the time a seven-year period or a ten-year period within the church's history. But in Rome, there were real slaves, like we understand today. Real slaves. The Romans enslaved Greeks and Parthians and everybody. Do you understand? America and Britain didn't, didn't invent the concept of slavery. It's been a human institution for as long as we can think. And in Paul's time, they were slaves, prisoners of war, captives, separated from the family forever, no hope to ever see them ever again. And some of these slaves were coming to Christ. And they were getting saved. They were finding freedom for their soul and spirit. And they were thrilled over it. And Paul tells them, this is what Paul says to them, guys. Just in case you think your situation's so bad, you can't obey. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing God's will from your heart, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Like that closed book. Case closed. Judge has ruled. No excuses left in any context whatsoever if this is the expectation of how Paul and Christ expected slaves to live and exist in their most horrific context. Are you tracking with me here? He's telling slaves to not serve just because your masters might beat you or treat you poorly and only when they're watching. He's saying when your slave's not watching you and you're alone, I want you to work just as diligently because you're a slave to Christ and your goal is to please Him and represent Him well, even in your hell. This is the climax of Ephesians, guys. This is what he's saying. This is why I'm saying he didn't just shift to some token earthly context things to say, hey, do this, live this, live this way. He is blowing up excuses and paradigms so that he can expose the climax of his most masterfully written letter in the scriptures. 
And he throws this in the end, which is why I love, because, you know, the masters aren't the only ones that get away. He says this, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way. And here's Paul's threat. And I want you to be clear on this. This is a threat. Without threatening them. Because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. In other words, he could care less that you're the master. Master of what? He's like, you're a slave to the master. Just like you think this guy is a slave to you as the master. And he's the master of both. And he's not going to show any favoritism when you get there. You treat this guy poorly, guess who's going to get treated poorly? And Jesus has told a handful of parables that say the exact same thing. Right? So look, before I get to the, that thing, I want to read this thing from C.S. Lewis to stress this point. No, I don't. I'm going to stress the point. Okay. <clears throat> you got to hear the context so if you feel like it's out of context just be like no Steve's never out of context just kidding you can come after and ask me or just say hey is that out of context right now if you hear it I'll probably say no but still it was worth the effort God in Ephesians is laying this out and Paul is laying out this one the highest priority right is this, that all things are being brought together in Christ for the glory of God so that the manifold wisdom of God will be exposed, expressed, and known in all of creation, heavens and earth, the rulers, principalities, and powers, wherever they are. And in order for that to happen, the church needs to be the mature seasoned vessel by which this happens through. That's why he says that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known through the church to the powers in the heavens and the earth. So because he knows just how critical a role the church plays in God's, like, in God's masterful, mysterious revelation of the mystery of the gospel hidden through the ages, Paul then shifts his emphasis for the second half of Ephesians to what the church needs to be. And he even clarifies in chapter 4 saying, this is the job the Lord gave to me. This is my mission, my specific calling from God directly. I live, breathe, and move for this purpose, to make known to the Gentiles this amazing gospel and to lay out the administration of this mystery, the church. Meaning, what the church is to look like, how it is to live, what its mission and purpose is to be, and the purpose of it being all that. And he begins to lay it out. And he climaxes by saying, guys, submit to one another in the fear of the Lord because, like Jesus said, they will know that you are mine by your love one for another. But that love is defined as Christ loves. And Christ loves on a cross, wrongfully crucified, wrongfully persecuted, wrongfully beaten, wrongfully abused, 
wrongfully accused, wrongfully slandered, wrongfully attacked. And in the, the immense pain of the humanity of experiencing those things and the rejection of it and the suffering he endured in the garden just the night before, he chose to love. And you know what that love looked like? It looked like this. Him not speaking a word. It says that he remained silent as it would be prophesied against his attackers, against the people that were wrongfully, spitefully using and abusing him and persecuting him. He did not say a thing because the motivation in his heart was to lay down his life for his enemies because he chose to agape them. He was choosing to love them. And it had nothing to do with whether his circumstances were pleasant or fair or just or right or anything. He laid it down. And so then, as he goes past the submit to one another in the fear of the Lord, he stresses now the most important, critical, pivotal, pivotal relationship in this thing called the church as far as the witness goes and the basis of the church, is the marriage relationship. This sits at the core of every family and at the core of the family of families, the church. It is the thing the enemy attacks the fiercest and the most consistently, trying to destroy this core, trying to destroy the center of it, because if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And if the foundation of what the church exists as is destroyed, then the church loses its identity, and the church loses its power, and its witness, and its ability to reveal to the heavens and the earth the manifold wisdom of God. And then the lost are lost. And we have a God that's not going to allow that to happen. He will keep a remnant if he has to, but there will always be a remnant. And I'm challenging us to choose to be part of the remnant that becomes the majority and begins to shine on this earth the way Christ rises and shines upon us. That we do that specifically. So there Paul says, hey guys, here's the most important thing. Is that the world sees Christ accurately. It cannot be a golden calf. It cannot be a distorted version. It cannot be a perversion of the name that is above every other name. If you read the prophet Jeremiah, you would read throughout an entire book of a prophet constantly stressing that God does everything over and over and over for his name's sake. And it does not mean the stress on that is not because God's reputation is important to him. No, it's for his name's sake, for his identity's sake, for the purity of who he is sake, so that the nations would be able to come to Israel and see Yahweh for who he is. And then in the church, that hasn't changed. It's just Christ has been revealed. And he needs to be shown and revealed. We need to live a life worthy of the calling of revealing Christ to the lost. And he says, this is why, guys, you are, this is the best way to describe it. We are performing roles. We are in a great drama that is unfolding in history. And we have been called in a great and high calling to a specific role to play in this task. Like as if we're in a play, we're on a stage before the world, and you have been called 
to play a role. Wives have been called to play a very specific role that has to express a very specific dynamic. And husbands have been called to play a very specific role that has to convey and display a very specific dynamic. Paul tells us what that is. That's why he says at the end, he could have left it with submit one to another in the fear of the Lord if it wasn't important. It could have just been left there. That covers it all, doesn't it? Hey guys, submit one to another and do it in the fear of the Lord. Good, check. Instead, he drills down to this specific relationship. And then he says, here's the mystery, guys. I'm not even talking about a husband and a wife. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And then he says, so therefore, do these important things. Why? Because the world needs to see how Christ loves his church and lays his life down for her, washing her with the washing of the word in order to to present her pure and spotless as the bride. And the church's job, not husband and wife here, Paul's saying, I'm talking about this mission. The church's job is to display to the world, to play their role of how grateful and submissive and, and trusting they are to Christ. And so now you have these two key roles that are performing before the watching world. And this is why Paul says it. This is why it doesn't matter whether your situation is good or bad or not in terms of obeying this. You have a high calling in Christ to play your role to the fullest that you can play this role because the world is watching. And then children come into that capacity. Children, obey your parents because this is right. And look at what the enemy has done in generations where children, now you get canceled for teaching your children how to be moral. You get canceled for thinking that your children may need to be taught how to make good decisions and how to grow up in this world. If you tell your four-year-old that they're not a different gender that they think they are, oh my gosh, who are you? That's outrageous. Who are you to tell them who they are? I'm their parents. I'm the adult. I'm the one that used to wear dresses when I was five and I have a beautiful wife today. That's who I am to tell my children, right? But more so, it's my job to train them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And then he goes to servants and masters and says the same thing. Because the focus is on the witness. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. You hear that, guys? I didn't, I didn't hear the moans and the roar that I expected from that. Like, ooh, ah, right? Do not waste time bothering whether you actually love your neighbor or not. He says, act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. And he says, there is indeed one exception. If you do him a good turn, meaning you're doing good to him, not to please God and obey the law of love, but to show him what a fine, forgiving chap you are and to put him in your debt 
and then sit down to wait for his gratitude, which you will probably be disappointed. Right? Like this is C.S. Lewis. He's saying, guys, you don't have to wait until you feel some sort of deep affection for your enemies in order to love them or the people that bother you in order to love them. He's saying, just act as if you did love them. And he says, if you do that, if you wake up every morning putting on this role, saying, okay, this is my job to play this role. I can't stand everyone, but the Lord has told me to play this role. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to choose to act like I love everyone. He's saying, before you know it, your habits will change. Your character will change. Your mindset will change. And you, without knowing it, will have been agapeing everybody the way Christ does. And then this work of God that happens in your heart will begin to produce the other loves, the human loves, the affections and the, the brotherly love and the family love. Like That's what C.S. Lewis stresses. But I love his perspective where he says, act as if you did. It's that simple. It's not hypocrisy to act as if you love someone if you don't have the feelings. It's obedience. It's truth. Right? And I wanted to close with the, the conclusion here, which is this quote. How many of you guys are familiar with Tales of the Resistance? I've asked you guys a few times this. Children's book, Tales of the Resistance, Tales of the Kingdom. <clears throat> this is a quote from it. The whole book is a beautiful uh, display of this concept, of this truth, <clears throat> where the land is overtaken by an enemy, this evil sorcerer that's pretending to be king, and he's telling people there's no such thing as a true king. They're all waiting for the true king, which is Jesus. And they're like, there's no such thing as this true king. But there's this vagabond group of play actors that are going around the whole land and stopping in places and performing these stories of the great king and his reality. And people are watching it and they're being moved by the reality of it. And they, they're being stirred by these people play acting the truth of the gospel, essentially. And so this princess decides... She's tired of living the princess life with all the things that come with the luxury. She just wants to be a street performer, performing the stories of the king that she has come to believe is real, even though they've never seen him. Right? And so this is a quote from her. It says this, And she did that, and she became a street player, acting out the king's story in such a way that all who saw her suspected then hoped there was a real kingdom. And like the king, she worked in common clothes, and she never gave the luxuries of the world a backwards glance, because when one has found one's real love, it is easy to leave what has only been pretend. But listen to the emphasis on that. She says this, that they acted out the king's story. Think of Ephesians 5 and the instructions of Paul's emphasis about us playing out the, the story of Christ and his church and his love for the church and the church's response of grace and respect and submission back to the Lord in response to that love. We're playing this out before the world. And he says that acting out the king's story in such a way that all who saw her playing this role suspected and even hoped there was a real kingdom with a real king. Guys, that's a summary of Ephesians. This is the emphasis of Paul's emphasis on Ephesians. That we would play this out. We would demonstrate as the church 
in such a way that we display the manifold wisdom of God that is, is embedded deep in the fact that a husband would love his wife like Christ does and lay his life down. That children would obey their parents and the Lord because it's right. That slaves would even willfully submit and serve their master and go above and beyond the requirements. Because they've grasped the idea that they're playing out the demonstration of the witness and the light of Christ even to their wicked master in the hopes that he would begin to see and then suspect and then hope that there really is a kingdom and there really is a king that produces such transformation and provokes such consecration and loyalty and love and service that even a slave would be transformed into loving his brutal master. The gospel shines in the darkest places when it's truly the gospel, when you've truly grasped the gospel and the weight of it and the value of it, when you've truly recognized the value of the Messiah shining his light on you. You become a different person and then you are suddenly already living in the heavenly places with him. And this short, temporary suffering that we endure here suddenly can't be compared to the weight of glory that we're anticipating and living for. Do you see? This is Ephesians. So at the end of Ephesians, Paul says this, all of this, this is what he says. For this reason. What reason? Displaying the manifold wisdom of God to the heavens and the earth through being the church the way Paul administered it to us. Right? Means loving your wife as Christ does. Submitting to your husband as the church submits to Christ. Children obeying your parents in the Lord because it's right. Slaves serving your masters as if unto Christ because Christ is your true master. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything, remember everything, the last five chapters, having prepared everything and done all of these things, you can then take your stand. You understand? This is what Paul is saying. Take your stand in the midst of a culture that is trying to absolutely destroy the book of Ephesians and its call to us. That you can take your stand in the midst of the enemy's full-on assault because you've prepared, you're rooted and grounded in love. And together with all the rest of the saints in the body of Christ, you have encountered what is the height and depth and length and width of Christ's love for you. And because of that, you're able to love and lay your life down for those who would persecute you and mock you and ridicule you the way Christ did. And then you take your stand in that confidently standing, knowing that God has equipped you with all the cool armor imagery of salvation and faith and the preparation of the gospel of peace. These things, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And then he says this, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Ephesians is a battle call. Ephesians is a cry to come to the mission, to come up to the front line and recognize what is at stake, the weight and the glory that is on the line, the souls that hang in the balance. And they're not depending and waiting for a bunch of young people to just go scattered on short-term missions. They're waiting for the church 
to become the church and then expand from that place until the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Do you understand? They're waiting for people to be burning with such a call and a preparation and a depth of having been prepared and standing and living this stuff that they're ready to go shine this demonstration and example of Christ loving the church and the church submitting to the Father because of that love. This is what's at stake. And at the end, hey, prepare and stand and pray without ceasing because God is on the move and he's doing stuff and he wants people on those front lines doing it. Do you understand that? Do you see that? I hope so. Because I can't think of any other way to make that clear. This is what's at stake. And God has, has so gloriously and graciously invited us in to be part of something that is eternally uh, earth shaking, like eternity shaking. You understand? It's like, like Maximus says. He says, what we do here in this life will echo throughout eternity. But it's an echo that rumbles and shakes the powers in the heavens and reveals to them just how wise God's mysterious and beautiful strategic plan has been and will be forever. And you get to be a part. And all he says to you is, you just have to surrender all that temporary, worthless crap that you've held so dear for so long. That's it. That's all he's asking. Turn to Christ. Surrender your own desires. Surrender your heart. Surrender your will. Surrender everything to the one that you can fully trust and let the world watch you do that. So, what's the challenge in this and the call? It's simply this, guys. As it always has been and always will be whenever I'm sharing. We need to evaluate our lives sift through it, get rid of all the temporary things that aren't going to last and begin to focus on Christ and his mission and the eternal things and make sure we have the first things first and that we're not messing around and playing around with things that are going to pass away and burn up and that we're not letting our desires for these temporal things or these selfish things lead us and rob us from what God wants to do in and through us. Remember this, we'll have all of eternity to celebrate our victories, but only a few short hours before the dawn in which to win them. That's a sobering quote and a sobering statement and a sobering thought. And it becomes even more and more sobering the older you get and the closer you realize you're getting to eternity. You know? So guys, there's no magnificent uh, rally cry, altar call. But there is this. We're here. Let's not waste it. God is speaking. God is moving. Let's respond to God right now. As always, stand up. Get out of your comfort zones. You've been sitting down for a long time because I'm the one who preached. So stand up. Shake it loose. Let's just begin to engage with God right now and ask the Holy Spirit to continue to do this work. God, what is holding me back? What do I still need to let go of? Where is my soul leading me and not, not your spirit? Show me where your spirit has been placed in the back seat and my own soul and flesh and desires are taking charge and leading. Help me to see. Help me to, to, to let go and to release. Guys, guys, sometimes your flesh holds on so hard and it is really hard to let go. If that's the case, come up and get prayer. 
Get someone who can help and pray through and give you perspective and hear from the Lord and begin to pray into that. Where two are together and you begin to just break things. Okay? But go after it. You can leave whenever you want. This thing's 24-7, just as a reminder. Also a reminder, be part, guys. Don't miss out on what God's doing here. Come take a block, lead a block, come be part of a block. Literally, at any time, day or night. Literally. Just come and be a part and see if God does something in your heart or moves or stirs vision in you. Whatever it is. So let's do that. Let's just let go. Let's begin to release. Let's go after God until he does something. Let's have life group leaders, elders, deacons, whoever are available to come up and pray for people.